Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, what we are about to embark upon is foolishness to the world. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And Father, the words that we have just sung, that we would glory in the cross, that we would cling to the cross, that we would remember the cross, a symbol of execution, a symbol of suffering. Father, it seems to the world a folly to rejoice in such a thing, but for those of us who know Christ, it is salvation, it is hope, it is forgiveness, it is redemption, it is everything. For on the cross, Lord, we have full forgiveness through the sacrifice of your Son. So, Father, today as we are reminded in your word of the importance of both a cross-centered focus and the glory that it brings in our lives, may we truly listen to your word today. Father, may we lay down our own wills and desires at this moment. Father, may we seek to put aside any other motivating or driving force in our lives, and may we seek to truly be pilgrims, focusing on the very thing that makes us pilgrims, the sacrifice of your Son on the cross. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit as only you can. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We have finally come to the end, or the last chapter, not the end. Don't get too excited. We've come to the last chapter of the book of 1 Peter this morning. And... uh, I said don't get excited because we're going to make it through all of one verse (laughs) this morning. This morning we're going to look at the instructions that Peter gives to pastors. So we're going to be looking at what a pilgrim pastor is all about. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, shouldn't we switch things here? And like, shouldn't I be the one hearing this And and, because I'm the pastor here? Um, but I think we'll find here that the, the exhortations and the instructions given to pastors are, are given so that pastors would focus the congregation on certain things. And we'll find that throughout this passage. And as a leader, as the shepherd of this congregation, it's helpful for you to see what God wants me as the pastor to be leading you towards, to be guiding you towards. What should be the focus of your pastor, and then if your pastor is supposed to be leading you into these things, then what does that mean for you? You should be focusing on them as well. So I think we'll find much helpful exhortation and application for all of us here this morning. 
You know, there's a saying that we often hear, it's say, keep, keep things to the basics, or keep, keep things, keep going back to the basics in a number of disciplines. So if you think about this when it comes to sports, they talk about keeping the basics in mind when you're playing a sport. I, I remember when I was playing soccer back in high school, one of the basics that was taught to me as a defender was to not watch the ball, but to watch, and this is weird, the belly button of the other player. And I thought, well, that's weird, but it made sense because the, the, the ball, he can do all sorts of misdirection with the ball, but, I mean, generally a soccer player can't do much misdirection with their belly button. So it was that basic idea that we kept in mind. The same thing with when I would play basketball. I would have to make sure I would run back and, 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 and get back on uh, a defense. I would make sure to not let the, let the person I was defending against get in between me and the basket. There are certain basics that we keep in mind. I mean, the same thing applies to your works, you know, what you do at work and your, your profession. There are basic things that you can't lose sight of as you go about your job, basic things that your company expects of you. There are things that we look at from a spiritual perspective that are basics. We think about the basics for marriages and the relationships we have and our families and Scripture's instructions for those different types of things. Now, the reality is that we all carry burdens in this life. And the only hope for those burdens is to get back to the basics of the gospel. That is what Peter is calling us to and calling particularly pastors to do as they shepherd the flock of God. See, the reality is, is that due to the complexities of life, due to the, the, the difficulties that we face and, and, the, and the, the complications we find, we, the, the busyness of life and the hectic schedules that we have, it can be easy for us to neglect the basics. Even in ministry, it can be very easy to forget and take your focus off of the very needful thing and focus for other things. Maybe putting all your hope in an outreach that you're going to do. Or put all your hope in programs that you're having. Or, or put all your hope in, in ministry and in, in having new chairs in the, in the auditorium or different things like that. It can be easy to get your, as a leader of the church, as a shepherd of the church, to get your focus off of those basics. And when we do that... When we lose sight of the basics, we end up getting mired down with the burdens that we carry every day. This is why Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, calls on pastors as those who shepherd the flock of God, who guide pilgrims, strangers, exiles in their journey on this earth to keep their focus on the right thing. And so what we're going to find this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to read through verse 5, but we're going to be focusing mainly on verse 1 this morning, is that Peter is calling us all to find hope in the cross and in the consummation of our salvation. That those are the two most basic aspects of the Christian walk. Hope in the cross and hope in the consummation of of our salvation. Look with me, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, 
not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this morning, I'd like us to focus today on that first verse, which I believe Peter uses to create a a reminder or to bring into focus what pilgrim pastors should be looking to. And so we're going to look at this morning the focus of pilgrim pastors. Now, if you look with me here in verse 1 of chapter 5, we see this exhortation given by Peter to the elders and that he himself describes himself, first of all, as a fellow elder. And what I find interesting here about Peter's approach is Peter is a disciple of Christ. He was the leader of the disciples, and therefore he became the leader of the new church at the day of Pentecost. He preached the sermon at Pentecost. Peter is an apostle, and and he is given and, and does great powerful things by God's grace through the Holy Spirit. Peter is sort of the leader of the church in one respect. But he comes and and exhorts these different congregations by focusing on their elders and calling himself a fellow elder. And then he focuses on what it is that a fellow elder, that he as an elder, as a fellow elder, is focusing on himself. How does Peter identify himself? He identifies himself as a witness and a partaker. He is a witness and to the sufferings of Christ, and he is a partaker in the glory that is coming to be revealed. So we see, first of all, that pilgrim pastors must witness to the suffering of the cross. Pilgrim pastors must witness to the suffering of the cross. Now, just a little teaching moment here. Um, We we see the three terms used in the New Testament for the leaders of the church um, in use in what Peter points us out here. So the first one he uses is the word elder, and that's the Greek word presbyteros. Now, presbyteros sounds a lot like what? Presbyterians, right? Now, we're Baptists, so we change that and we say baptizomos or whatever. No, no. So it's just, the, word, the word presbyteros was just a simple term that meant those who were, were elders. And it took on a particular uh, theme in the Old Testament. If you, if you remember, you read in the Old Testament, it would be at the gates of the city where the elders would sit. And these elders were considered wise men. It, it didn't necessarily mean that they were advanced in age, although that was oftentimes implied, but rather they were men who had been gifted to provide wisdom and counsel to the people of that particular city. And so in the same way that the Old Testament had elders that provided guidance and care for individuals in a city, so God chose to take elders in Christ, those who had grown in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and given them the role of an elder in that same idea. Now, we know it's not tied to age. Paul um, exhorts Timothy to let no one despise his what? Youth. 
And Timothy was very clearly an elder in that church. So it's not looking so much at the physical age of a person, but rather it's speaking to their wisdom and their growth there, if you will, age in the Lord. It is someone who is mature in the faith. So he uses the term elder, but then in verse 2, we see him calling them to shepherd the flock of God. And this is the term that is often uh, translated in other translation as pastor. We, if you hear the term a pastoral scene, a pastoral scene is a scene where you see rolling hills and generally there are some sheep in that scene. And that's the idea of what a pastor is. A pastor is someone who takes care to guide and direct and to provide for the sheep. And of course, Peter is going to point us to the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, who we know from John, uh, John's gospel in John chapter 10 is Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. And then the final word he uses here is he calls the, the, these elders who are pastoring the flock of God or shepherding the flock of God, he calls them to exercise oversight. And this is a Greek term, episkopos. And so we've already talked about the Presbyterians, so when you hear episkopos, what do you think of? Episcopalians, all right? And this is, this is referring to more of the idea of being a household manager, someone who manages the affairs that, is in, that are involved with a particular group. So when, when Peter uses all three of these terms to refer to one office, I think we have very strong um, evidence biblically here that, that there is to be this office that is fulfilling all three of these roles. An elder, someone who is mature in the faith, seeking to provide guidance from God's word, someone who is a shepherd who is teaching and encouraging and caring for the flock of God, and then someone who is ex- exercising oversight or, or using the role of an episcopos or a bishop. And so when you look in the New Testament and you see these different roles, you'll see them refer to elders, you'll see elsewhere they'll talk about bishops or they may talk about pastors, they're all referring to the same office. These are the roles, the descriptions that a pastor is to fulfill. Now, before he dives into the specifics of what these roles entail, what shepherding the flock of God is, what exercising oversight is, he sort of provides a theme, an overarching focus for the pastor in his role of shepherding and in his role of being an elder and in his role of exercising oversight, and that is that he would be like Peter and focus on, first of all, the sufferings of Christ. You know, it's interesting how the cross becomes the very focus of what a pastor is to do. This is not uncommon in the New Testament. This is what the Apostle Paul did. Paul spoke of how he boasted in nothing except what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, if you think about particularly what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 6, what is it that makes us strange to the world? It is the cross. The cross is the very thing by which we are crucified to this world. Our pilgrimage begins at the foot of the cross. 
For in the cross, we have been crucified to this world. We've been crucified to the things of the flesh. We've been crucified to sin. And that makes us different than a world that is lost in the darkness of their rebellion against God. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, that as he came to the church at Corinth, there was only one thing he truly determined to know among them. And that was... Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so Peter focuses here as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He lumps himself in as a witness to Christ's sufferings. Now, there's a problem here, though, with this statement if we don't truly understand what Peter is saying. And unfortunately, among the commentators and the commentaries I I looked at, there was a lot of, of consternation about this statement. Because Peter claims to be a witness to the sufferings of Christ, but if you remember the stories, did Peter himself physically witness the crucifixion at the cross? And the answer is no. So how can he be a witness to the cross. In fact, there was only one disciple that we, that we are certain of was at the cross, and that was John. All the other disciples scattered when Jesus was arrested in the garden. Peter followed for a bit behind, but yet even he himself left. So what is he talking about when he says he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ? And And I think Peter here is pointing us to something much more significant than his physical presence at the crucifixion of of Christ. He is pointing to the spiritual reality of what the cross has done for him. See, if we go back to the garden and we go back to the Lord's Supper and and we go back to those moments, those hours before Christ was arrested, Jesus makes a statement that all of his disciples will fall away because of him. Now we all know Peter had a habit of sticking his foot in his mouth, much like probably every single one of us. And Peter, hearing this, says... Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What a brash, self-righteous statement. I'm never going to desert you, Lord. I'm all in with following you. How, How could I, the leader of the disciples, the one who proclaimed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will never deny you, Lord. Jesus turns to him and says to him, Truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, not only will you fall away, but you'll deny me not once, not twice, but three times. Peter's response to the words of our Lord were, Even if I must die with you, I will not die. Deny you. And then he gets the chorus of the disciples in there, and they all said the same thing. Yet, 
when Jesus, when Jesus is arrested and taken before the high priest, Peter knows some of the individuals in the high priest's home, and so he's able to go into a courtyard. He's following Jesus from a distance. Quite, quite a, a sheepish way to say to that, the, that the person who just said, I will die for you, look at how he's following from afar. And they had asked him once, they just asked him, aren't you one of his disciples? That was the question. Not, do you want to overthrow the Roman government? Not, are you, you, know, are you trying to up, 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 put all sorts of upheaval in the re- Jewish religious system? Just, are you his disciples? Do you, know, do you even know him becomes one of the questions. And one time Peter says, no, not his disciple. Second, second time, no, no, I, I don't know the man. And then in Matthew 26, 73 through 75, there were bystanders that came up to Peter. We know elsewhere that these people were standing around the fire warming themselves. And they said, certainly you are one of them too, for your accent betrays you, speaking of the fact that he was a Galilean. Now it's been one denial, two denials. And now on the third time, Peter, once again brash, once again bold in his proclamation, begins begins to invoke a curse on himself. I mean, think about that for a second. In his denial of Christ, he is saying, if I am a follower of a Christ, may I be accursed. And then he begins to swear using gutter language. I do not know. And notice who he refer, notice the way he refers to his precious Lord, the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So, Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. So what is it that Peter is witnessing to? We know the story of the cross. Christ goes. He suffers. He bleeds. And this entire time, Peter is in hiding, carrying with him guilt over his denial of his Lord. At this moment, I imagine Peter probably felt very much like Judas. And then he hears that from the, lit, from the women who went to the tomb, that Jesus is gone. And he runs with John to the tomb. And John, being a little bit faster than Peter, gets there first. And Peter just stoops in and looks, and the Savior is gone. And then an angel appears to them and tells them that Christ has risen from the dead. And this is a moment of joy. But yet, 
in the gospel's presentations, you can see that in the midst of that, Peter has a hint of reservation about this. Jesus is risen from the dead. I'm the one who led the disciples, and I denied him three times. There's interactions back and forth between Jesus and the disciples. We see those in the Gospels. But in the Gospel of John, John chapter 21, the last chapter, one of my favorite chapters of Scripture, begins with Peter just getting up and saying to the disciples, I go fishing. He's now back to that same scene, that same way of life that he was before Jesus found him. What did Jesus find Peter doing? Fishing. And Jesus had said that he would make Peter a fisher of men, and now Peter's going back out on a boat to fish fish. They fish all night long. They don't catch anything. Jesus calls out to them on the shore and says, have you caught anything? They said, no. And he said, put your nets on the other side. And they're filled with fish, so much so that they can't bring them in. And the, the nets are breaking as they get back to the shore. Finally, I believe it's John, says, it is the Lord. And Peter, who's naked, jumps into the water and swims to be with Christ. There, when the disciples get there, they see a fire going. Fish cooking on that fire as Jesus has prepared lunch for his disciples. Or I'm sorry, breakfast. And then in John 21, we see that they finished breakfast. Jesus looks at Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these. Peter responds to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Shepherd. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Shepherd. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was what? Grieved. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What we find when Peter speaks of him being a witness to the sufferings of Christ is not that he was there and physically saw Jesus suffering. There were other Disciples, John in particular, others at the foot of the cross who bore witness to the reality of that truth. But Peter here as a shepherd, as one who has been called by Christ three times 
to feed the flock looks at the sufferings of Christ and witnesses to them because of how it redeemed him from his failures. How he, who was a denier of Christ, who had turned away from him, who had invoked a curse upon himself and swore profanities that he did not know Christ, yet through the cross, Peter is now restored to lead God's people. As he says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for who? The unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. See, it is the suffering of Christ as he takes the place of Peter himself. And all of Peter's denials of Christ all of Peter's profanity-laced tirade against Christ, all of that is nailed to the cross. And Peter is a witness of what the cross can do in bringing salvation. He's no longer someone who has to be grieved and weep bitterly over his sin, but Christ has set that sin aside. So that he can come and shepherd and feed the flock of God. This is to be the testimony of every pastor. And it is a reminder to you as the congregation that no matter who stands behind this pulpit as your pastor, whether it be me or someone else, they, all they are are redeemed Sinners saved by the grace of God and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Do not idolize your pastor. Look only to Christ. And every pastor must share this testimony. You know what the word testimony is here? It's actually a different word than, or witness, I'm sorry, the word witness here is different than a word that he uses in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, he talks about how he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration, and Peter was there. This word is a Greek word, martoeo. What does that sound like? Martyr. And in fact, at this time, when Peter's writing this, the term just simply meant to proclaim a truth. To proclaim what you know to be true. Speaking or witnessing of Christ. And what ends up happening is that to do that, to speak of Christ, would bring death. And so today, we think of a martyr as someone who dies for the message they bring. This is what Peter is focusing on. He is focusing on the fact that Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are what? Healed. Peter is witnessing to the healing of the cross. And so it is the charge for pastors as he, a fellow elder, speaks of how he is witnessing to the sufferings of Christ. To be an elder is to know 
that Christ has canceled the record of debt that stood against them and all God's people. He canceled it, set it aside by doing what with it? Nailing it to the cross. So pilgrim pastors must first witness to the suffering of the cross. You know, there's a great, a, a great focus here that Peter is, is bringing out because what did we just finish looking at in chapter 4? That, that believers are going to what? Suffer. And so Peter reminds us with this very, knowing his story, knowing how Christ had redeemed him, knowing the intensity of the forgiveness that Peter had, we see how suffering is a means to great things in the hands of God. That as we look to the suffering of Christ that brings about our redemption, our own suffering can only be brought to bring about good. So pilgrim pastors must witness to the suffering of the cross. But secondly, it doesn't end there. And I fear that oftentimes, even in my own ministry, that there has been a focus on one half of what Peter focuses on here. And so it is good. We focus on the cross. We live cross-centered lives. We look back and we glory in what Christ has done. But our gaze is not only to be backward. Notice what Peter says. He is a witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as a what? A partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And as Peter looks back, he also looks forward, pointing to our partaking in the glory of Christ. It is not just the suffering of Christ that brings hope to believers, but it is the glory that that suffering will bring about that we look forward to. It's interesting, the term that Peter uses here, a partaker, it is the Greek word called koin, from the Greek word koinonia. Maybe you've heard that term before. I know there are even some churches around that are called koinonia fellowship, which is very redundant because koinonia means in Greek fellowship. So you have fellowship, fellowship. But it has the idea of sharing in common one thing. It's often spoken of of the church that we have and share in fellowship with each other, that we partake with each other. And of course, the thing that binds us together is that we are in Christ. And being in Christ, we share that together and partake together in that. But as we share in Christ, as we see His sufferings that bring us forgiveness, that also brings a great hope that in Christ we will fellowship with him we will partake with him in his own glory the glory the second coming of christ is a great hope for believers and may we never forget it peter's already reminded of us of this in first peter chapter one he says in this you rejoice and then notice what he juxtaposes it with suffering even though now, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more, pressure than gold, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revealing or the revelation of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus comes back 
All our suffering will be worth every moment of it. We won't want to give up one second of the suffering that we faced because of the glory that we see in Christ. He reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 4 that insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, we also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And so here we see Peter's own personal testimony on display. These are the things that he focuses on. The sufferings of Christ that, have, that he is now witnessing to as it has transformed him from a denier to a shepherd of God's people. And then an expectation, a hope that goes beyond this world knowing that Jesus will return again. Isn't that a wondrous glory? He's coming again. This coming is going to be visible. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, as Jesus ascends up into the heaven, the angels there speak to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Don't get caught up there. Look, Jesus, who's taken up from heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go in heaven. Boy, wouldn't it be wonderful? There's lots of clouds in the sky today, isn't it? Aren't there? Wouldn't it be great if in those clouds Jesus came down as the rain comes down and he would display to all of creation that he is king? Paul speaks of it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, that we find relief who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. And this is, again, pointing to that suffering. The world hates Christ. The world hates His people. But there will be a day when Christ will appear and there won't be any question who is ruling this universe. And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks of how they're not lacking in any gift. God has given us everything we need to face the sufferings as we what? Wait. What are we waiting for? The revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who sustains us to the end and will bring us guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a great vindication of those who have persecuted us over them as we see Christ returning in the clouds. And it will be of such glory and such power that death itself cannot hold back the glory of Christ. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will what? Rise! And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What a glory. What hope. And so we find great encouragement in this truth. We are to encourage one another with these words. And that's exactly what Peter is calling on pastors to do here. 
encourage one another with these words. Can you think of two subjects that are more hopeful than the cross and the return of Christ? The cross puts away our sins, allows us to be reconciled to God, and then the return of Christ is the hope that this suffering, this world that is cursed by sin will one day be put away and we will always be with Jesus. This is the basics of the gospel. Repent and trust in what Christ has done. And then throughout our pilgrim journey, we look forward to that day when Jesus will come. And as John ends the book of Revelation, he says, even so come, Lord Jesus. Is that your desire? Is that the cry of your heart? That Christ would come. So, How do we apply these two truths? How do we find great hope in them? Again, Peter has just focused on the fact that we will endure suffering as Christians in this world, that we will suffer as we walk all along our pilgrim journey. How do we find hope? Well, the Christ, the cross, provides hope for our failures. Look, we're facing suffering. You're going to have friends, family members, co-workers who are going to be like those men questioning Peter in the courtyard of the high priest. And your desire is like Peter's desire. When you're in the garden, when you're at the table with Him, you, your desire is, I will never deny You, Lord. But yet, when the pressure comes on, what can we so easily fall into doing? Being just like Peter. As we face suffering and persecution in this life, it is easy for us to deny Christ. How can we find hope when we've turned our backs on Him so often, we look to the cross. We find in the cross the forgiveness of Christ for all our failures in following our Savior as we ought. We seek the grace of God from the cross to transform us so that the next time we're faced with persecution, we will not turn away from Christ. The cross provides hope for our failures. There is not a person in this room, there's not a person watching online who has not failed the Lord Jesus Christ multiple times this last week. And yet we find hope that all our sins, all our unrighteousness is nailed to the cross. So we can find hope. And then we look with expectation to the return of Christ in our suffering. It provides hope for us when we are feeling the fires 
of persecution, when we are feeling the pressures of conformity, when we feel out of step with this world. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Notice how he describes our affliction. It is light and it is what? Momentary. And it is preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As Paul says in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to what? The glory that will be revealed in us. Peter is focusing on these two things as he is a shepherd, a fellow elder, a pastor of God's people. And so this has been a challenge for me. What should be the focus of the ministry here at Bible Baptist? The cross and the coming of Christ. The cross provides hope from our sins. The coming of Christ provides hope from this wretched world. Aren't you glad that this is not all we have to deal with? That it's not going to be misery and suffering for all eternity. It will be joy and glory in Christ for all eternity. So Peter is calling pastors to do what Jesus calls his pastors to do. To believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Sorry, that is the correct translation. It's not mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. If it were not so, I would not would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. You know what Jesus is doing right now? Among other things, he is preparing a place for you. And if he goes and prepares a place for you, what will he do? He will come again so that we can be taken to him so that where he is, that's where we get to be also. But you notice I left out the first phrase of this passage. Because it all drives to what? Let not your hearts be what? Troubled. I started by talking about how we all face burdens and difficulties and trials in this life. And there are many things that trouble us as believers. The cross removes the trouble of the guilt of our sins. We no longer need to weep bitterly. We can rejoice in what Christ has done. And the return of Christ gives us hope that the troubles of this world will not last forever. Jesus is coming again. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for such a glorious hope. Father, we thank you that the cross cleanses us from all unrighteousness. May we be witnesses of that hope. Witnesses to the suffering of Christ. Witnesses that show that we who were once God deniers are now God proclaimers by your grace.
And then, Father, we rejoice and find hope that this light momentary affliction is nothing in comparison to the glory that we will see when Jesus returns. Father, send your Son quickly. May He come today. But we leave it in your perfect hands. Make this be an anchor for our hearts as we walk as pilgrims. Father, as a pastor, as the pastor of Bible Baptist, may our overall focus be on the cross and the coming again of Christ. May we be founded with this great hope. We pray all this in Christ's name. Pleading.